Hey, hey, everybody, this is retirement news for the week ending Friday, August 6th, 2021. So what happened this week? Well, Bitcoin got up over 40 grand again, which is awesome. Gold is still floundering just under that $1,800 level, which sucks. Uh, A, it sucks uh, because it makes no sense historically that gold isn't worth more while the Fed is recklessly killing the value of your U.S. dollars. Um, and B, it sucks because I own a pretty fair amount of gold and gold mining stocks. Um, so I'm still a bull, but uh, and I'm a bull for gold and silver, and I will be vindicated, but I just don't know when. So negotiations on the infrastructure bill uh, continue to drag on. Now, one interesting item of note this week is that they cut out what was going to be a $50 billion program to reduce the fraud in unemployment programs. So if you haven't heard, in California, they've paid out over $11 bucks worth of fraudulent unemployment claims, and there's another $19 billion that they suspect as fraud. And if you've ever lived in California, you know that you can easily double those numbers. So there's some frightening fraud going on in the unemployment system, and it's not just California. But back in Washington, opponents of this allocation of funds to fraud reduction claimed that any attempts to reduce fraud could, quote, worsen the lives of jobless Americans already struggling with ailing unemployment insurance systems. Let that one sink in. Okay, so... The big news this week was on Tuesday when the Biden administration announced a new federal moratorium on evictions, bowing to pressure from progressive Democrats to revive the moratorium that had just lapsed, even though some White House officials were saying they lacked the legal authority to do so. So the CDC uh, eviction ban targets areas that have experienced, quote, substantial or high levels of COVID-19 transmission uh, and will likely to cover more than 80% of U.S. counties. Um, the action claims to buy states and localities more time to distribute around $47 billion in rental assistance that was designed to help tenants harmed by the pandemic who have fallen behind on their rent. But as of June 30th, only $3 billion of that $47 billion had reached tenants and landlords. Uh, quote, I asked the CDC to go back and consider other options, Biden said on Tuesday before the CDC announcement. Whether the new approach passes constitutional muster, he added, quote, I don't know. But he said a legal fight would provide more time to get the congressional money distributed. The CDC said that the new order will last now through October 3rd, but is, quote, uh, subject to further extension, modification, or rescission based on public health circumstances. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. And even if you're not a landlord, I'd really appreciate it if you'd stick with me on this, because this, to me, is an incredible and frightening example of mandated wealth redistribution and a forfeiture of property rights. So our friend, 31-year-old waitress Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, joined a protest last weekend at the Capitol where they were rallying for an extension on the moratorium. They carried signs with slogans like cancel rent, you know, lots of yelling, you know the drill. One thing that was said over and over was the phrase, housing is a human right. But is housing a human right here in America or anywhere? If you stopped working tomorrow and stopped paying your rent or your mortgage for whatever reason, how long would you have the, quote, right to stay where you're living? 
Um, my Detroit tenant decided not to pay rent for the last month of his lease, then proceeded to squat in my house for another month. So was that his right? Now, there are mom and pop landlords here in Portland, Oregon, who haven't been paid since last May. Hell, there are people all over the country that haven't been paid since last May. Um, a guy named Jim Parrott from the Urban Institute and Moody's chief economist Mark Zandi released a paper in January uh, with an estimate of $52.6 billion uh, racked up in total back rent. And that was in January. Okay, so that was six, seven, eight months ago. Um, so hopefully mom and pop landlords have been able to arrange mortgage deferrals to offset some of this. But there are a lot of people out there who aren't billionaires who really depend on that rent coming in to pay their own bills. Now, just in case you're in the camp of looters like AOC, you need to know that around 22 million rental housing units are owned by private parties. And unlike what you regularly hear from ideologue Gen Z politicians and tenant rights advocates, the majority of these people aren't yacht-owning fat cat billionaires lighting cigars with $100 bills. Many, if not most, of these mom-and-pop landlords are middle-class or upper-middle-class people who just happen to have a combination of traits, whether it be foresight, smart money management, thrift, or simply just worked hard enough to acquire real estate so that it could provide income for them. But now, our government has chosen sides. And it's siding with the renters. The people who have a different combination of traits. Maybe they're young and just starting out. Okay, real good on them. But if you're over 40 and you're renting and you're struggling to make rent, you might have some traits relating to money management that have led you directly to the point where you are right now. Traits, for instance, like lack of foresight, lack of intelligence relating to money management, poor spending habits, or you may simply be lazy. Now, before you get pissed at me for sounding cruel, I know there are outliers. Outliers. Remember from your statistics class? Look it up. Outliers. Yes, there are people suffering from hardships. There are outliers. Yes, there are single mothers. Yes, there are people with disabilities. Outliers. Yes, there are people who live in places like Manhattan or San Francisco where buying a home is next to impossible for the middle class. I recognize this. But in the aggregate, oh, and there are also people who choose to rent, okay? I've already talked about them in a previous episode. So yes, I get all that. But in the aggregate, people who are over 40 and renting most likely have made a series of financial decisions that were bad leading to their situation. Uh, and I have proof. So I actually did this last week. Go to a decent apartment building wherever you live. Now, I'm not talking about a shithole slum apartment building. I'm talking about like a decent apartment complex, you know, with a pool that might charge your basic market rents for your town, not the uh, uh, luxury apartment living places or places like that. I'm talking about your middle-class apartments. Drive through the parking lot and look at the cars. Last week, I drove through the lots of two complexes in a town where near where I live, and it was insane. Uh, the cars overall looked like they were, on average, three or four years tops. There were tons of very recent models in these lots. And you know they're buying these on credit and making monthly payments on them. And you want to know the average monthly payment for a new car? Well, right now, according to LendingTree, it's $563. And according to NerdWallet, it's $577. $577 a month. Now, I'm not going to go off on a tangent about the financial irresponsibility of buying a new car, 
But if you, quote, can't afford to buy a house, but you can afford a $500 uh, car payment, you're a fucking idiot. Full stop, mic drop, suck it if that sounds mean. But I need a reliable car to get to work. But I need the latest safety features because I'm a helicopter parent and all the other helicopter parents at my school have kids that, that have the latest safety features on their SUVs. <laughs> Give me a break, okay? Anyway, we're talking about rent, not cars. But money, your money is a holistic intertwined system of decisions, good or bad. Your net worth is the sum total of your good decisions minus your bad decisions. And if you're over 40 and renting, you've made more bad decisions than good decisions. But if you're a renter, you get special protections directly from our government ostensibly paid for by people who made more good decisions than bad. Now, my Detroit renter stopped paying, and I really have no recourse on that. Uh, I took the risk to buy that house. I spent the money that I saved by not having a fucking $600 car payment to buy a house and put a roof over that kid's head. Yeah, And by the way, yes, the tenant is male in his mid-20s and very capable of working. But in the eyes of the CDC the current administration, and the AOC brain trust, I'm the one not deserving of protection. I'm not the, quote, vulnerable. So why is this news? Okay, why is this retirement news? Well, first off, there are a ton of retired people whose total income is Social Security and income from rentals. They've been seriously fucked by this. While their tenants get enhanced unemployment benefits, totaling, in the majority of cases, more than they made when they were working— those same tenants also got, what, three total stimmy checks from uh, Trump and Biden? Okay, but those retirees who depended on the income from those rentals are out of luck. So anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned I started reading Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. That book is all about this kind of stuff. The doers and the non-doers. The producers and the looters. In this case, the landlords are the producers and AOC and the squad, and the renters are the looters. The needs of the looters who do not produce are placed above the rights of the producers. Because I've taken the time, sweat, and money to acquire a needed commodity that serves the looters, I am punished for having had that fortitude, the creativity, the discipline, and the intelligence to act in my self-interest, which created a product that serves the looters. The looters are entitled to preferential treatment because they need. Not because they do, but because in the eyes of the policymaking looters, they need. Their need offers them entitlements that include forfeiture of my rights. If this makes me an asshole, I'm sorry, but have I said anything untrue? Um, I wanted to bring this up first just because it pisses me off, but also because I'm a big advocate of owning rentals as a part of your retirement plan. And hence, you might be saying, how can you be a proponent of owning rental properties when your government is willing to, specifically the government agency in charge of preventing illness and disease, is willing to strip you of your rights as a landlorder via a blanket moratorium on all evictions? Well, uh, this proves that what I need to do to continue to serve you is I need to start doing more research on international properties. 
and what kind of landlord protections you might be able to benefit from in other countries. Um, so look for that in future episodes because, the, I mean, this is kind of disturbing stuff. Um, also, to offer a little more uh, editorial from Matt here, um, you know who's been kicking ass lately in the rental market? It's short-term Airbnb owners. Yes, they did get screwed when COVID first happened and uh, it was bad, but now they're doing great. And because so many employers are now indefinitely allowing employees to work remotely, there is an entire class of young people who have remote jobs who are renting furnished places for a month or two at a time, living that digital nomad lifestyle. And the people who are capitalizing on this trend are making bank. And now let's talk about the unintended consequences of government overreach. Could you argue that there aren't enough long-term rentals available? Absolutely. You hear about the, quote, housing crisis all the time. Could you argue that housing supply shortages are not going to be made up by the current rate of home construction? Absolutely, yes. And I've got numbers to back that up. So let's say you're a mom and pop owner of one of those 22 million housing units. You've just had a year where you may or may not have received rental income, and you may or may not have been able to get a deferment on your mortgage payment. Either way, you're probably pissed. And either way, you might be only maybe have a 50-50 chance of getting some of that landlord assistance from the government. Once the time comes that you can get rid of that deadbeat tenant of yours, will you consider turning your place into a short-term rental and capitalize on this new trend? How many people are going to do this, which is going to then reduce the overall housing stock for long-term rentals? And who wins in this? Yep, the white, college-educated 20 and 30-somethings who can live that glamorous nomad lifestyle going from cool town to cool town living in furnished Airbnbs, posting awesome Instagram pictures of their awesome adventures, and living the dream. Who else wins in this? The landlords who will make more money renting to those nomads and who won't have to deal with future government molestation of their property rights. Who loses? Well, as the long-term rental supply goes down, it's going to accelerate the increase in rents, simple supply and demand. So the young, possibly minority, lower middle class folks who were once able to raise their families in a house in a safe neighborhood are now going to have to move into an apartment, probably in a worse neighborhood, as rents continue to skyrocket. Or what about the old lady who could barely afford the one-bedroom apartment and who's getting tiny COLA increases in her social security checks? She's going to have to move further out of town, away from services, possibly into less safe neighborhoods because she's been priced out of the place she's been for years. This rent crisis is going to get worse, and it's the vulnerable people Washington pretends to care about that are going to get fucked in the process. You know, we love to protect or quote unquote protect the vulnerable here in America. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel warm and benevolent. But we never consider the unintended consequences of our need to feel good. To quote the great Thomas Sowell, sometimes it seems as if there are more solutions than problems. On closer scrutiny, it turns out that many of today's problems are a result of yesterday's solutions food for thought there. Anyway, uh, by the way, once you're finished with Atlas Shrugged, please do yourself a favor and read Thomas Sowell's Black Rednecks and White Liberals. It's brilliant. Okay, enough about that. Let's talk crypto. So this week, I set up a Bitcoin node here at my desk. What's a Bitcoin node, you ask? Well, in simple terms, 
A Bitcoin node is a computer that's connected to other computers via the internet that hosts and synchronizes a copy of the entire Bitcoin blockchain. So these nodes contain a record of every single Bitcoin transaction since Bitcoin started. Um, nodes validate each block of transactions before adding them to the blockchain. So the nodes are kind of referees of the Bitcoin network setting and enforcing rules um, uh, about which transactions and blocks are valid and which are invalid, okay? Now, I'm not going to probably explain this well, but the reason that we need Bitcoin nodes is because this is a decentralized currency and platform of exchange, okay? So when I say decentralized, there's no intermediary, okay? Before Bitcoin, any transaction you did that wasn't in cash had to have some kind of bank or clearinghouse or entity to make sure that you actually had the money to transfer and to make sure that that money was transferred to the right place. So think of a Visa transaction, okay? So Visa checks your available credit, then sends money on your behalf to another party, then immediately reduces your credit by the amount sent. Or think of a, a bank ACH transfer. Your bank makes sure that you have the money. It tells the other bank that you have the money and sends it over the wire through some kind of skull and bones illiterati protocol. And then the recipient gets credited whatever the amount is while your account gets debited. Okay, and finally, think about PayPal. It's like a referee between two parties. And one thing these referees do in a centralized system is make sure you can't do what's called double spending. So say if you say you're a bad person and you had a hundred bucks in your PayPal account and you had two laptops open with two different recipients ready to send a hundred bucks each to let's say they're your friends. Okay. You click send to both accounts at the exact same time because you think you're quick enough and you can fool PayPal and send that hundred bucks to two people. Well, it doesn't work because PayPal is your intermediary, your centralized intermediary, and they're always going to check both sides of the transaction to make sure there's money there preventing the double spending. These are all centralized systems, and the biggest issue that decentralized currency had to solve was that concept of double spending. Okay, so... Now, if Bitcoin is truly decentralized and there's no bank or PayPal in the middle to verify your balance for each transaction, how does it work? Well, each of these nodes, like the one that I just built here on my desk, has a record of all the transactions that have ever happened. So if you're sending someone 100 bucks of Bitcoin, that ledger of transactions will show that you have enough money in your wallet, essentially, or enough Bitcoin in your wallet, by essentially looking at multiple nodes, and if they all agree, then the money can be transferred, and that transaction is then propagated out to all the nodes again, which then have an immutable, that's what they call it, or unchangeable record of that transaction. So your wallet now has 100 bucks less, the recipient's wallet now has a hundred bucks more. And I keep saying bucks. Okay. It's, it's Bitcoin. Um, but because this transaction was on, was in a data block, which is now part of the blockchain on thousands of nodes, you can't go back and change it or undo that transaction because it's permanent. Okay. And it's permanent because all these thousands of nodes agree that it's permanent. So, um, 
I hope that kind of makes sense. Okay, it took me uh, uh, quite a while for my pea brain to be able to kind of visualize how this stuff works so I can relate if this little explanation doesn't do the job. But um, I I'm going to keep talking about this and hopefully we together can figure all this cryptocurrency stuff out because like I've said before, it's here to stay. So how do you make a Bitcoin node? Well, they have these little computers called, and, and there's there's multiple ways to do it, but here's how I did it. They have these little computers called Raspberry Pis, and that's P-I, not Pi, P-I-E. Uh, they're basically, it's a little printed circuit board with a processor and some RAM and some USB outlets. Uh, there's no monitor, and uh, if you want to put it in this, this board into a case, you have to buy one. They make these so you can run little electronic experiments and stuff. They use them for kids' science classes and stuff like that. And they're small, maybe the size of a pack of cigarettes. Um, and also they're pretty cheap. I think mine cost me about 80 bucks or so. Now to run a node, because the machine is always running, it can get hot. So they tell you to buy a little fan kit heat sink to keep it cool. You also have to buy a hard drive to plug it in. And that hard drive uh, is what holds all the blockchain transactions. Um, and then you also need an ethernet cable because you got to plug it uh, directly into your router so that it's constantly connected to the internet when new transactions come in. So for me, it turned into a little bit of an ordeal because the instructions for this little fan kit were so tiny, my old man eyes couldn't see the right little power jumpers that I was supposed to plug the fan into. And I plugged them into the wrong place, so apparently the fan was drawing too much power, uh, and the hard drive that I bought wouldn't run on that Raspberry. So um, after a ton of trial and error, I finally figured out where I went wrong. I got it all working and got the drive plugged in, and then through an application called Umbrel, U-M-B-R-E-L, I could watch the progress on my laptop while hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin blocks were downloaded to that drive connected to my Raspberry Pi. And today, the whole history of Bitcoin is now on my desk in a little SSD hard drive, which is totally cool to me. Oh, and I think it took about 48 hours for it to fully synchronize so that because there was just so much data coming in, it took, took a couple of days. So that was my little adventure in creating a Bitcoin node. Um, next week or the week after, I'm going to give you a full rundown on why you might want to have a Bitcoin node yourself. Uh, so look for that. But uh, anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, have a great weekend and uh, I'll talk to you next week. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.